1: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Each week, we choose an interesting new book on some area of sports, and we interview the author. This week, my guest is Gideon Hag, regular columnist for the national newspaper, The Australian, and the ESPN site, CrickInfo. We are discussing his book of collected articles from 2008 to 2010, titled Sphere of Influence Writings on Cricket and Its Discontents published in 2010 by Victory Books and available in the UK from Simon and Schuster The last 5 years have brought seismic changes to cricket a new shorter form of the sport called 2020 or T20 cricket has swept the globe the Indian Premier League and other made-for-TV competitions have injected hundreds of millions of dollars into the game. And the political and economic core of the sport has shifted. No longer does international cricket rotate around the axis of England and Australia. Now India has become, in the words of Gideon Hag, the unipolar superpower of cricket. These still-unfolding developments have fundamentally transformed the administration of the sport, the ways that cricketers play the game and plot their careers, and the ways that followers of cricket experience the sport. Gideon addresses these issues in his essays, as well as the deeper existential questions that, in his view, must be asked in this time of great change. But as you'll hear in the interview, his concerns and insights about cricket are also applicable to nearly every other major sport today, in this age of saturated sports television and uncontrolled commercialization. Gideon is a sharp critic, but he is motivated by an ardent love of the game, as he tells us at the start of the interview, his writing is shaped by the experience and appreciation gained from playing cricket, which he still does today. To begin, I asked him about his playing with his club in Melbourne and how that influences his work as a journalist.
0: Uh, well, I mean, I, I play cricket regularly. I played at this particular club for, uh, for 18 years. Um, I got involved through a friend of a friend, in the in the classic tradition of, of club cricket, and uh, he was he was short one weekend, and um, the, his reasoning was that I couldn't do any worse than a than, a, than an empty space. So um, so I could understand that. <laughs> it was a close run thing um, to begin with, but uh, but I love this club, and uh, I've never been happier playing cricket. I've played cricket since I was about eight years old at at, at various clubs all over the map. But, uh, but this one is uh, one I'm particularly happy at I'm the club games record holder uh, an honorary life member I've held basically every honorary position that, that you can find uh, all except for president strangely I've always rather fancied myself as a sort of a gray eminence uh, so I've been um, I've been a vice president actually for about 13 years uh, chairman of selectors I publish the uh, the club newsletter I um, I run the karaoke night. I run the trivia night. Uh, I, it's, uh, look, it's um, for years I played cricket at clubs, and I never really knew how these games came about. I always yeah, just yeah. took it for granted that there would be a, a game for me at the weekend. And yeah. as as I've gotten older, and and as I've um, as probably my. You know, belief in my own ability has, has ebbed, I've found different areas of appreciation and enjoyment, and one of them that I find is is organising the games that that other people play, uh, building a little sense of community, building a little bit of social capital, mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, helping to kind of instil practices of citizenship in my fellow cricketers, if that's not a pretentious way to, uh, to put it. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, it's a good way to make up for the fact that I'm not very good. Um, <laughs> those, those who can play, those who can't organize. So you
1: compensate by having a larger civic mission in your. I,
0: I have a larger civic mission. I couldn't. <laughs> I couldn't put it better myself. I mean, I still play very actively and very keenly. Um, uh, and I'm an opening batsman, uh, which means that I go in. I go in first, mm. and uh, somehow that sort of suits my sort of. Masochistic English temperament, um, sort of providing a bulwark for my uh, for my fellows, and I bowl sort of cerebral, non-turning off-spin. Um, those <laughs> those out there who have a cricket appreciation will understand the type that I'm talking about. Uh, actually, in, the, in my last game of the season, I made 92, which is the, the, my highest score. I, I'd never gotten closer to 100. Uh, but I think I, I would have been lucky if I'd been to 100 because I was so completely exhausted at the time I didn't have anything left yeah, yeah. but it was ago it was a really fun afternoon um, the, the, the stimulus of, of playing um, and the way in which it works hand in hand in writing I, I think is invaluable mm-hmm. uh, even if you can't do a particular thing well you have an appreciation of, of, of when you see it yeah. um, and you, you get it you get a sense of just how difficult yeah, it is yeah. and how trying and how uh, technically and temperamentally challenging good sport
1: is. Yeah. So that was actually something I was going to ask is, is how does, uh, the fact that you're still an active player. And, and, uh, I remember reading it, which one of your books that that you talk about that you have a cricket bat in every room of your house.
0: I do. I do indeed. yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So,
1: so how does that shape your, your writing about, uh, international cricket and first class cricket?
0: I guess look for for, for a while. Uh, having said that, I that I played continuously since the age of eight. There was actually a period in my twenties where, for various reasons to do with my uh, journalistic um, pursuits and and timetable, that it was difficult for me to play. Uh, I did give it away for about five years. I just couldn't make it training. I'm the, I'm the kind of player who who really needs constant training to maintain the level of mediocrity. You know, it's it's, it's pretty hard one. Uh, But the minute that I came back to the game, I thought, you know, this is why I love it and Mm -hmm. this is why I write about it and this Mm -hmm. is why I'm passionate about it because it is, I think, particularly cricket is a player's game. Uh, The laws and the principles and the techniques seem to have been devised very much with players in mind. Mm -hmm. Uh, I often say that that, that cricket is entertaining, but it's not really an entertainment. Mm -hmm. If you were going to design a colourful exciting mass urban spectacle these days probably the last thing that you would come up with would be cricket where the action takes place so far away from the viewers Mm -hmm. where the laws are so abstruse where the barriers to entry and understanding are so high uh in fact that's that's a dilemma that we might talk of later in, in relation to cricket but if you're a player uh it's a unique and exciting and intriguing perspective. Much, and when you're involved, you know that that one-to-one competition between between bowler and batsman, uh, neither of uh, who this this particularly privileged view of each other's arts and this weird sort of intimacy and perform this strange kind of dance mm-hmm. of opposition. Uh, it's very difficult to understand that as a. As an observer, if you haven't been able to project yourself into that role, and I do it, and I'm fascinated by it absolutely every week. Mm-hmm. Uh, the um, the act of endurance, the the role of luck, um, the sense of being in form and out of form. You know, it's strange you know i can go through periods where i feel as though i'm hitting the ball really well i can feel as though i'm in form but i won't make runs Mm -hmm. and there'll be days where even the last innings that i played that that 92 i didn't feel in particularly good form Mm -hmm. all day i don't think i hit the ball as crisply or as or timed it as well as i have on other occasions but it just happened that i got just that little ration of luck Mm -hmm. at crucial moments that that Got me through the difficult periods, and if you've experienced that, and if you can kind of empathise with that when you're talking about it to a sportsman, it's absolutely invaluable. Mm-hmm. And even if you don't mention it, somehow I don't know, it gives you it gives you a, an instant rapport. I, I, I recently had the experience of co-authoring uh, of a book with uh, with a young Australian player called Ed Cowan, who's um, an opening batsman for Tasmania. I'm sure the fact that I am a player, and the fact that we have both sort of thought our way through playing Dilemmas before gave our collaboration a, a particular synergy. Mm-hmm. But I, mean, I mean, classic case. I, I wasn't paid for, a, for, for the job because he he's a friend of mine, but he did give me a bat, mm-hmm. and, uh, and it's a very, very good bat, <laughs> and I still use it. And I got my 92 with it, and he's a stoked as I am that I've managed to make runs with uh, with that bat. And uh, I always let him know. I always let him know how I'm going. Um, terrific fellow Ed, and uh, and it was a great collaboration. But it was a collaboration between two players, yeah, yeah. in a sense, rather than say, um, I guess, between a writer and a mm-hmm. and a star, mm-hmm. um, because in the course of our lives. They've been totally defined by what we do in the summer, mm-hmm. by the kind of the, the diurnal course of summer with cricket embroidered through it at regular points. And I know that my livelihood hasn't depended on cricket, but in, in some respects, my state of mind, my, my level of happiness has often been dependent on cricket. Mm-hmm. So we had, kind of, we had that kind of common ground.
1: Well, let's turn to your new book. Uh, So the the subtitle of this this collection of of your essays is uh, Writings on Cricket and Its Discontents. Mm. And uh, it's safe to say that you are one of the discontents.
0: <laughs> and uh, and you the have journalist many journalists should always be discontented. And, Bruce. and you have you, have you show me, <laughs> me a contented journalist and I'll show you a rubbish journalist.
1: <laughs> yeah, but you have me- you have many targets for your discontent as well, and we'll we'll talk about yeah. a few of these in the interview. But as I was reading the different essays, I was looking for a unifying thread. Uh, maybe mm-hmm. maybe the root of this discontent, and uh, and I'll throw out my ideas and, and see uh, see what you think about them. Sure. Uh, so is is the basic problem? Would you say is it is it ramped up commercial? Commercialism in cricket—is it the shift in uh, of the center of gravity of cricket from England and Australia to India, or is it is it an overall crisis of identity for the sport,
0: or or none of these? Did I miss well, the mark? I'll, no, 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 no. I'll I'll, I'll 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 sort of explain to you the provenance of the book, which 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 might which might aid in our understanding. I have actually over the last five or six years been publishing. Books that are essentially collections of, of, of previously published writing, with sort of vague unifying themes. Uh, one of them was was a collection of, of, of historical pieces uh, uh, called Silent Revolutions. Uh, another one was a collection of pieces about what I call cricket culture. A book called Inside Out, and and I'd sort of I'd sort of had in mind uh, w- w- when I started writing these pieces. I sort of had in mind. Uh, a sort of an overall collection, looking at the direction in which sport or, or cricket is is, is heading. Uh, and the pieces were all sort of designed to try and explain to myself as much as anyone what the implications were of the, uh, the the change in the underpinning or the change in the direction of the game. Essentially what's happened in cricket over the last five years is that a new variant of the game has sprung up called T20. It's uh, it's a radically shortened version of the game. It's kind of mass produced with a uh, with a television audience in mind, and it's become exceedingly um, extraordinarily popular in India. The original reason for this was that India, despite an in- initial reluctance to popularise the form, which originally arose in England, mm-hmm. won the inaugural World Twenty Twenty in two thousand and seven. And if Indians like anything more than cricket, it's cricket at which they win. Mm-hmm. Um, in a sense, uh, the victory in the world 2020 provided the hymn of self-praise that I think Indian elites and, and Indian sports fans are particularly fond of. As a result, partly as a result of the success of India in the world 2020, uh, a private uh, uh, an enterprise called the Indian Premier League sprang up. It was created by the existing board of control, but its genesis... Uh, It was the brainchild of a particularly skilful and particularly uh, imaginative Indian entrepreneur called Lalit Modi, who uh, sold eight franchises, very much an American model of uh, of sport. In fact, he um, he even took the uh, took the title commissioner of the of the IPL as an explicit borrowing from uh, from America, and he created eight city based franchises to compete in this competition. They are all sold to uh, to individual private sector investors and they competed for the first time in April 2008. The television rights were sold for an enormous sum of money. Uh, the television rights for uh, an auxiliary tournament called the Champions League, which takes place later in the year and involves t20 sides from around the world, were sold for even more money on a on a per game rights fee basis and as a result of this, the kind of the whole sort of hierarchy of values and the whole uh, sense of priorities about cricket changed uh, for administrators as well as for players and I think as a result of this uh, I asked the question on the back of the book, and I think it's a really important existential question, is does cricket exist in order to make money or does it make money in order to exist? And I don't think that cricket has satisfactorily answered that question Uh, and it keeps confronting it day in, day out. I think the players, uh, the interesting thing is that the players, I think, have very much held the line uh, on what they regard as the most satisfying and important forms of the game in general uh australian test players and english test players have gone on valuing test matches above t20 but i think for the level of players just outside international cricket because you've got to bear in mind that only 11 players will represent their country at at any one time there is now a means by which you can earn a very tidy living being not as good as you used to have to be. Mm-hmm. You know, to earn a great living at cricket, you used to have to be really, really excellent. Now you can be not quite excellent. You can be proficient rather than outstanding. And that holds all sorts of implications for cricket, which I don't think administrators have, have necessarily been over eager to grasp. They've been too busy putting out their hands and, and creating T20 properties and trying to sell them for money. There are IPL clones all over the world now. Uh, we have one in Australia called the Big Bash League. Uh, there's one in Zimbabwe. There's, uh, there's one in Bangladesh. There's one in Pakistan. There's one that's meant to be coming up in in Sri Lanka. And all of these uh, make available large sums of money for relatively short periods of time and and the money can be earned under pretty leisured circumstances because the television rights themselves are so valuable. Mm -hmm. And they are having the effect of crowding the cricket calendar these days. Cricket goes... Twelve months of the year, almost incessantly. It is very difficult for a fan to follow absolutely everything that's going on. So, in effect, I think that this sort of T20 juggernaut is kind of cannibalising the uh, the calendar and cannibalising attention. And cricket's not it's not a, a zero sum game, but but certainly broadcaster and sponsor and fan interest is inevitably being dragged towards the shorter, glossier, mm-hmm. more instant gratification forms of the game at the expense of what I see as the premium uh, forms of the game, the ones that, that have this sort of quasi-institutional status and, uh, and heritage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Picking up on that, and and picking up with with what you discussed earlier about this merging of of your business journalism and your sports journalism, mm-hmm. something you discussed throughout is is this out of control commercialization of of cricket, mm-hmm. and and really in in all sports, this is something sports fans gripe about mm-hmm. that, that the salaries mm-hmm. are too high, that the franchise yes. fees are too high, that the yeah. the television fees are too high, and and so forth. And but and when it comes down to it. When my, when my team is on TV, I'll watch their matches, and, mm-hmm. and my complaining goes out the window. So I'll ask you pers- your perspective as somebody who knows the business side. Uh, mm-hmm. What is it about this, this, this business economic side of cricket in the last five years? What is it that fans really need to know about and that they need perhaps to be
0: worried about? Hmm. It's a, good, it's a good question. It's a good question because, of course, there are great advantages to... Um, uh, there have been great steps forward in cricket as a result of mm-hmm. its embrace by, by television. There's no doubt that cricket is, in a television sense, a more exciting game than it used to be, often to a fault. It's so ridiculously exciting that it almost seems to bear no relation to, uh, to the cricket that you're actually watching. The commentators are so wildly enthusiastic and that uh, the, the, the television coverage is so high-tech that you can sometimes be distracted from the fact that you're watching really quite mediocre cricket at times, played by very ordinary cricketers. Uh, That's the great shame of it. You know, cricket should be excellent. We should always be aiming for excellence. We should always be excited by the best players on the biggest occasions uh, in the most meaningful matches. And, in fact, what we're getting is the opposite. We're getting a kind of a mass-produced commodity product uh, whose main purpose is provision of, of, of content for television uh, that that really means that's that's very exciting but essentially means uh, relatively little the thing that does disturb me about about cricket and that also disturbs me about um, about the business model that, that's been pursued is that I don't see even in India the sums of money that have been paid for major sporting attractions as really stacking up. Uh, I think that over the last five years we've been in a kind of a boom economy. Uh, Maybe it's a little bit like the subprime market just before it um, it went south. Uh, A lot of money has been invested in pursuit of short-term returns, and the short-term returns haven't necessarily been there. I don't think any of the IPL franchises are actually making all that much money at the moment. Uh, there's a belief that if people hang on, then uh, there will be big dividends for uh, for the survivors. Certain franchises have been very successful; others less so. We're just about to see the first franchise sold in India, the Pune Warriors, um, uh, and that will be a very interesting indication of the underlying economic health of the IPL. It was bought at the absolute top of the market, three hundred and thirty million dollars. Uh, I suspect it's worth about a third of that mm-hmm. and that may introduce a degree of, of economic common sense into, uh, into what's transpiring. It may be a, a, a salutary incident in, the, uh, in um, the emergence of the IPL. And I think the other thing that, that fans just can't avoid looking at is the effect on the performance of the Indian cricket team during the period of the, of the IPL's ascendancy. Uh, They, at the time of the IPL, India was an extremely strong team, uh, converging on the number one status in test cricket and de facto number one status in one day international cricket because they won last year's World Cup in India. But since then, they've tapered very, very badly. They were absolutely monstered in England and they've been thrashed in Australia this summer and they've looked a very ordinary... uh, a very lazy, a very apathetic team that seems really to be to be going through the motions, and I cannot help but wonder whether uh, the effect of sudden degrees of great wealth has had an effect on the appetite and motivation of key players in the Indian setup, and also the ability of India to continue producing players. Of a quality who will excel in the longer formers of the game. If you're if you're starting out in Indian cricket at the moment, would you be trying to be the next Rahul Dravid, who's their classic sort of their, their great number three Test match batsman who has faced I think thirty one thousand two hundred and fifty eight balls in in Test cricket, who is the the acme of the five day player, or would you be trying to be someone like? a Yuvraj Singh who's famous for having hit six sixes off and over in the world 2020 in 2007, who is probably at least as wealthy as Rahul Dravid, if not more. Uh, if you were economically sensible, you would realize that there are many more opportunities to be a Yuvaraj Singh than there are to be a Rahul Dravid. And you'd probably calibrate your game accordingly.
1: So you, so you brought up this point earlier, which I, I, I took note of in the book that, um, that television really, in terms of television coverage of cricket and sports, it's simply a matter of of providing content. Uh, it doesn't matter in mm. terms of the quality doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether it's it's good sports. It's simply sports. And this is something I've thought of. Uh, I think this applies in the U.S. I think it applies in Europe, all over yes. in terms of televised yep. sports. Here, here yep. in the in the, in the states, uh, it would be the case of football in that we have, yeah. of course, professional football uh university football I think is on TV five nights a week and now we've begun to broadcast high school football so 16 17 yeah. year olds and hmm. uh I've wondered and, and and maybe I I get the sense that you're thinking along the same lines that is is there a breaking point in terms of of too much sports uh hmm. being broadcast huh. that 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 what we're seeing is really debased
0: yeah yeah it's funny, you know, television has actually, I think, had the effect of, rather than necessarily enhancing our appreciation of sport, has kind of gulled us into believing that what we're watching on sport is, what we're watching on television is by definition important because yeah, television yeah. confers importance. Uh, and what we don't see is thereby subtly denigrated because, you know, if the tree falls in the forest and there's no one there to hear it, does it make a sound? Uh we we have I think begun to privilege sport on the basis of its accessibility. You now, is it available on free to air television? Um, is it available on uh, on pay per view, or, or can we not see it? Because you know, there's some outstanding cricket played around the world which I have no chance of seeing mm-hmm. at all, uh, and I'm you know I'm acutely disappointed by that. Uh, I you know I I I I'm still up in the air about this. Uh, look, I play bad cricket every weekend and you know it's quite stimulating and it's fun but i wouldn't expect people to come and watch me um and i certainly wouldn't expect them to pay for the privilege uh and i think if commentators were being honest about these things if they were actually performing the role of being genuine analysts and critics of the game rather than simply um uh hawkers or um or salesmen yeah then perhaps we might have a more sane idea of the direction in which sport is going. Because, of course, there is that eternal duality of of purpose um, for the commentator. Now, is his role there to uh, interpret or analyse and criticise, or is he there to persuade and sell and seduce? Mm -hmm. And I think some commentators have forgotten that there's a distinction at all. Mm
1: So the problem, you would say, is really, and I think you mentioned this in one of your, your essays, that uh, uh, what we're seeing in terms of what, what the technology of the cameras can offer at the field level uh, is really mm. quite remarkable in terms of what we can see mm. of the action. Mm. Yeah. But it is, yeah. the, it is the commentary in terms of what we hear. It's, it's, it's basically it's
0: pure advertising. Exactly. Well, the coverage, the the medium is the message. Where, um, where, where certainly where cricket's concerned, they're doing quite extraordinary things. And and in some respects, cricket benefits enormously from its television coverage because of that factor that I was talking about. For the action takes place so yeah, far yeah, away from yeah, the viewer, yeah. but it does worry me that if you create a kind of a televised or, or a, a, te- a television version of cricket that is so much more intimate and so much more engaging than the actual in-ground experience, where's the incentive to actually go to the ground? Uh, I mean, this, this, is a, this is an abiding problem in, in Australia. We, um, uh, the saturation coverage of cricket in Australia has had a deleterious effect on ground patronage. And it's kind of difficult for sport to go on hiding that, yeah. to, 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 to pan away from those great vistas of, of empty space in the stands, and that can't help but distract from the spectacle. Yeah. It's interesting that, that, that these days I think that um, the original purpose of television uh, has, been, has been kind of turned on its head. Originally, of course, tele- the idea of television coverage of sport was to let you feel what it was like to be there. In the stadium, whereas now the experience in stadium, it, you're encouraged to to feel as though you're watching it at home on television. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's worrying. I don't know what the situation is in, in American sport, but I do know that in devising the Big Bash League mm-hmm. in, uh, in Australia, which is the new domestic 2020 tournament, uh, the organizers did an extensive tour of sport in the US to see what kind of in stadium attractions there were. Mm-hmm. And some of them were brought back to Australia where I have to say they looked really naff. They looked really <laughs> sort of puerile and such, out of such, place as, such as. Oh, you know, every time someone hits a four, we set off fireworks oh, or oh, you know, on, don't on tell detonate flamethrowers. <laughs> it was ludicrous. Uh, you just you sort of just can't quite do that in cricket uh i look maybe maybe the next generation will will be more amenable to that but it did look like a desperate kind of me too exercise mm-hmm. uh, an attempt to make cricket look like something that it wasn't
1: yeah yeah no we have the same debate in the states as to uh uh why why bother spending the money for parking uh, to go mm. to the stadium, you know, what I have to sit next to some smelly guy who spills his beer on yeah. you when I can, I can sit down in my recliner and watch my, my big screen mm. HDTV mm. and, and, and see everything better than I would yeah. in the stadium. Yeah. And, and so there yeah. has been this question of how will uh, now with the improved, improved coverage and improved televisions that you can buy to put in your mm. house, mm. Uh, mm. why
0: bother going to the stadium? Yeah. Curiously, I don't watch a lot of sport on television. Uh, well, I don't watch a lot of cricket on television mm-hmm. because uh, when I watch television on cricket, I feel this overwhelming impulse to go and play it. Oh, funny. So I, I think I, I sort of partake of my, of my cricket experiences primarily by playing it mm-hmm. and then by watching it in grounds and then and only then watching it on television because, frankly, I can't stand watching it on television. I can't stand listening to someone tell me what to think it's like sitting next to um a turetic imbecile who's constantly tapping on you tapping you on the shoulder and saying look at this look at that look over there this is happening right now can i send you something
1: (laughs) all right well another theme that you talk about throughout the book is that cricket is not a well-governed sport uh, yeah. And but really, fans of every sport in North America, Europe, yeah. Australia make make the same gripe about the administration yes. of, of of their sport. So so let me put it to you this way: um, it, to bring some order to the world of poor sports governance, okay. is is cricket the worst governed sport in the world?
0: Pound for pound, I suspect it probably is. I think FIFA is probably mm-hmm. more poorly governed and more corruptly governed but it's a bigger game and somehow it can seem to get by because the game itself is so good. Uh, cricket is still only played at test match level by, by 10 countries. That's a very poor result after, you know, basically 150 years of the, of the export of the, uh, of the game and it's being played around the world. That is an indictment of the standard of, of international governance. The problem for cricket is that it has this additional level or this additional layer of post-colonial complication. Now, it's an international game that's played at test level exclusively by past and present members of the British Commonwealth, so it has this kind of, this eternal dynamic, this eternal sense of persecution um, and and borderline revenge in formerly colonised powers. And there's a sense certainly in, in India uh, and I think in Asia in general that uh, now we exert the economic power, uh, we will sort of live out our kind of – we will play out our post-colonial complexes by throwing our economic weight around. I wouldn't say that's true everywhere, but in certainly in cricket administration circles, there's a sense now that, well, you used to run the game. In Australia and England, now we run it and see how you like it. Uh, it's as puerile and, and, and petulant as that. Uh, I think that the other thing about cricket administration is that it's been a terribly closed shop over the years. Uh, there has been a loathness on the part of administrators to embrace the idea of outside expertise, and the boards, the boards themselves, both at ICC level and at board of control level have very little say over who actually sits on them because they're often appointed by subsidiary bodies. And if you're looking for a governance model um, to take the game forward, uh, well, that's probably the first thing you do away with because it's a kind of an endlessly replicating cycle of, of mediocre individuals who uh, are promoted and then do their level best to, uh, to protect their own bailiwick's... Uh, Over the last five to ten years, certain boards of control around the world have tried to introduce independent board members. In Australia, we're in the process of trying to do it at the moment. New Zealand started. The West Indies have it. England has it. But the Board of Control for Cricket in India does not, and the ICC, despite its recent efforts to do so and the commissioning of the War review, does not and probably won't get it for the foreseeable future. So you face, I think, the endless kind of replication of uh, the governing principle of of self-interest and the assessment of the individual board members by the boards that they represent in terms of what they can deliver to their own constituents rather than a general commitment to the good of the game. In fact, it's very difficult for people to put their finger on what they imagine to be the good of the game Mm -hmm. anymore. There doesn't seem to be any... There doesn't seem to be any intellectual exertion towards finding out what that means at all. Mm-hmm. One of the big questions in
1: in cricket, which you address in the in the book, uh, and other writers address, is is the future of Test cricket, and uh, with with the popularity of T Twenty cricket now. So, mm-hmm. uh, let me ask you do you see do you see a place for Test cricket in, in the future, r- rather than just being a a museum piece that that preserves
0: tradition? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do, because I think it's really good. I mean, if cricket if, if had become moribund, if mm. it had not continued to attract the best players, if it hadn't continued to be played at the standard that it had, which I feared was a risk five years ago, mm-hmm. uh, as players migrated towards the shorter formats of the game, particularly fast bowlers who wanted to, uh, to preserve their vital spark and prolong their careers, then, then I'd be more worried than I am. Actually, over the last four or five years, there has been some absolutely brilliant test cricket, some really, truly memorable, high-standard test cricket played in a very red-blooded fashion by committed cricketers. Uh, In some senses, I think the cricketers at the moment that we've got playing are the best things about the game. Mm -hmm. They have the clearest... uh, They they have the, the kind of the highest ideals, and they continue to demonstrate a dedication to chess cricket as being the premium form because it is the most exciting, the most skillful, the most uh, um, wide-ranging, the most unpredictable form of the game. In some respects, you know, the game's kind of been turned on its head. 2020 has always been promoted as this kind of incredibly exciting, um, maverick, out there sort of... um, rock star sort of form of the game. In fact, it's very, very predictable quite a lot of the time and very, very forgettable. Mm-hmm. I think tend to think these days that, that test cricket is the rebel game because it's the, it's the form of the game that stands in the way of the administrators maximising the bottom line. Mm-hmm. It's a form of the game that I suspect some administrators would just as soon did not exist. Uh, it's the anti-establishment. Form of the game these days. I'm exaggerating slightly, but um, but it's the form of the game that exists for the sake of existing because it's good, not because it's it's easy to sell or easy to promote or uh, or or even particularly obvious or or commercially retailable. Um, and that, to me, is a justification for its existence. Um, that's that's impossible to argue against. I think if you if Test cricket is eliminated, then the other forms of the game become difficult to justify because one day cricket and T Twenty cricket need something to be shorter than. <laughs> if T Twenty was the only version around, uh, I think the browsing interest would move on pretty quickly. Uh, in fact, my fear is that that as As more T20 is played, the the emphasis of administrators will fall increasingly on the promiscuous television browser of sport, the person who's just sitting at home flicking through the channels and saying, oh, this looks interesting. Mm -hmm. I might watch this for 10 minutes, Mm -hmm. and then I'll change the channel and watch something else. At the moment, that seems to be the administrator's main interest, is trying to attract the passing set of eyes rather than doing something for the people who do support cricket year in, year out, who are passionate about it. There's this constant idea of developing new markets in cricket. New markets is kind of this eternal abiding obsession of of administrators. Uh, What about the old markets? Mm -hmm. Um, Is anyone looking after them or are they just simply going to become uh, more sort of alienated and embittered and distracted and Because they're the people who the game really relies upon. Mm -hmm. In a sense, they're a little bit like political parties at the moment who are constantly sort of converging on a sort of imagined Mm centre or trying to attract the swinging voter and are ignoring their core constituents in the process. Mm
1: -hmm. So moving from the effects of of, uh, T20 and and the IPL on on Test Cricket, I want to ask how... How the the rise of India in the, in the cricket world in the in the last five years or so? How has that affected Australia? So so yours is a sports mad country, a cricket mad country. How has this shift of cricket's center of gravity to India has it has it caused deeper tremors in in Australian culture?
0: Well, in fact, what it's done for in the main is it's made us very rich um, <laughs> in a short period of time because. Uh, we have, over the last, I think, 10 years, had television rights agreements for the broadcasting of Australian cricket into India via ESPN. And Indian TV rights anywhere fetch more money than, than any other TV rights because they have by far the biggest audience. Mm-hmm. Um, in some respects, our uh, capacity to... Or, or, ..or the money that we earn from, from Indian TV is the gold bullion in Cricket Australia's vaults. Mm-hmm. Uh, we make more from that than we even do for the Ashes in Australia, mm-hmm. uh, even though the Ashes, I think, remains the most prestigious and, uh, and closely followed contest of all. So in the short term, there have been enormous financial benefits for Australia. And there have also been benefits for the players, uh, What I was saying before, that tier of players who are sort of immediately below international level, all of a sudden there is the possibility for them to earn quite sizable incomes by going to play in India for six weeks of the year when they would not otherwise be playing because IPL is held at a time in the cricket calendar when Australia is not generally playing very much, uh, although we are actually about to play at the moment and some players will miss out on the opportunity to play IPL because they have international commitments. But what it has also meant is that there have been a set of kind of perverse incentives have been created for Australian players and for Australian states. There's a tournament called the Champions League, which I mentioned before, that takes place around about August, September. It's a joint venture between the BCCI, Um, cricket australia and cricket south africa it pits the top players or the top teams in um, domestic t20 tournaments against one another over about a three-week period and frankly it's really bad it's the kind of mediocre cricket that i was talking about before because it's it's basically domestic t20 teams playing against each other it's really pretty awful but they sold the television rights for nine hundred and fifty million US dollars to um, to ESPN, and it's actually it's been a disaster for ESPN. They've lost a lot of money. They lose about fifty million dollars a year on the tournament because they, it was a bit of a bit of a last minute panic when it when it came to buying the rights. But getting into that tournament for uh, for an Australian state or now for a um, for um, a Big Bash League franchise is basically their number one objective. So uh, it, it's it's had a kind of a deranging um, effect on the priorities of of domestic cricketers because it is it is so much more lucrative than, than any other form of the game, and I guess the other the other thing that that it's um, it's done to to Australian cricket is to create. Uh, it, we play an awful lot against India now mm-hmm. because it's by far the most lucrative, um, our most lucrative international engagement. And for years we didn't play against India. You know, it's strange. You know, we, I grew up in, in sort of my uh, early years as a cricket fan. You never saw India play. Uh, they came to Australia in 1977-8. They next came to Australia in 1985-6 and then 1991 too, and then not again till 1999. Mm. So we, in, a, in Australia, we missed seeing great Indian players and we were very short-changed by our administrators. India were a fine team and had some wonderful players to, uh, to watch and we never saw them. Well, now we play against India all the bloody time and it's tedious, it's tedious because particularly... In the last little while, because India has been in decline at international level, so we've watched we watched India last summer play some really bad cricket in in Australia. They were beaten by a very good Australian team, so it wasn't you know it wasn't completely unwatchable, but it was kind of demoralising to see a team um, as kind of indifferent uh, to to the business of, of playing Test cricket and as poorly prepared and poorly led as this Indian team was. But like it or not, we're going to see an awful lot more of that Indian team over ensuing years because they're good box office. Mm-hmm.
1: I want to ask about some specific players uh, whom you talk about in the book. And uh, one Australian player who's featured in the book is, is Shane Warren. And you just published a, a new profile of Warren uh, for mm. the new online journal, The Global Mail. And in that piece you write, uh, and I quote, on perhaps no Australian do so many people hold views as Shane Warren. And so I want to ask, why Why is Warren such a, a focal figure in, in contemporary
0: Australia? Well, look, let's not forget that he's great. Okay. He is great at what okay. he does. I mean, he is astonishing at what he does. The The, the particular art form or the particular cricket skill of which Shane Warne is a must is the most difficult skill of all, leg spin. Uh, I, bowl, I bowl a leg break about once a year uh, because I think I, I managed to convince myself in the intervening year that it can't be that <laughs> difficult. And then I do it and you just go, that is impossible. That simply can't be done. Uh, and he does it um, as well as anyone in the history of the game. Uh, and he has gone on doing it for the duration of his career, which is now you know twenty years twenty he 's a Wayne gretzky of a of a figure uh, He is by f- astonishingly enduring um, astonishingly skillful, but of course there is this whole other side to him which is you know he is no more a cricketer than marilyn monroe was an actress he is the incarnation of star quality in in australian cricket he is our first cricket celebrity we've had famous cricketers before but we've never had a celebrity cricketer before because he is uh in a new sense he's an accident waiting to happen um he is the soul of indiscretion he is uh, private life. Well, he has no private life. His private life has been so relentlessly public that the man can simply have no secrets left. I'm sure he does, but, but that's not the impression that, that he gives. Uh, he's wound up, of course, with um, with Elizabeth Hurley, the um, the actress and, and model. And the strange thing about Warner is that that just doesn't seem unnatural at all. It seems just par for the course. He was always destined to be there, And he has carried with him throughout his career a weird kind of sense of destiny Mm -hmm. that, despite the fact that his life has um, uh, taken all these incredible, unpredictable twists and turns, he's always had this undilutable, indestructible belief in himself and his own greatness. Mm -hmm. And that's – you just have to take your hat off to him. Um, it was he came back to a, to Australian cricket last summer having not played here for uh, for 5 years and he looks his age you know he's he's 42 and he's you know he's he's lived the life you know you can see it it's um uh, it's in his voice it's in it's in his face it's in his even his rejuvenated uh, head of hair uh and yet he still had the knack mm-hmm. he still had the knack and he still had the ability to make you sit up and pay attention. When Shane Warne bowls, you know, interestingly, cricket is one of those games where it does seem for periods that you can sort of look somewhere else, that you can be distracted, that you can look over your friend's shoulder, that you can look at the sky, that you can look at the stand, uh, you can look at the cameras. Well, when Shane Warne is bowling, you can't look anywhere else but where Shane Warne is bowling, and that is an incredibly rare quality.
1: So you have an essay in the book about the, the musical based on his life, yeah, yeah, which, which admittedly yeah. I scratched my head over this. I, I just cannot imagine a living athlete here in the States who would be the yeah. subject of, of a Broadway musical.
0: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. During their lifetime to yeah, and yeah. go to see it on opening night. Uh, and it's, it's a very funny and extremely irreverent musical. It's, um, it, in some parts, it's actually quite scathing of Warren and his, Uh, and the ruins that he left of his marriage. His wife is presented as a deeply sympathetic figure and Warren is kind of a bit thoughtless and and insouciant. But I I remember I went to see the opening night and I sat just behind Warren. I I don't know how they persuaded him to go. I think that it was just because the idea was that, you know, he could demonstrate that he was a good sport by going and that probably was good advice. Anyway, at the interval... um, I remember sitting there thinking, "Boy, Shane, this must be tough for you mm. to watch your life flash before your eyes in musical form." Uh, I wonder what you're making of all this. But he stood up at the at the intermission and he turned around to the audience behind him, and he sort of he sort of gestured. You know, he went like this. What do you think? Mm-hmm. He looked around. You know, what do you think? And people went, "Yeah, yeah, it was great. Yeah, yeah." And he sort of, you know, he sort of nodded. He took it in. He didn't know much about musicals, but he knew what he liked. Or well, he understood. He understood an audience's response. Mm-hmm. And if the audience was into it, then something had to be right about the whole exercise. And you know, um, and he was he was prepared to embrace this, embrace it on that basis.
1: So another player I want to ask you about is uh, Sachin Tendulkar. And uh, you have an essay in the book in which you describe watching Tendulkar on on Boxing Day 2003, and uh, and this is an essay about his his significance for for cricket. So so what is has uh, Tendulkar meant for for cricket?
0: Well, in fact, the the irony of of watching him on Boxing Day 2003 was that uh, he was received. Like a homecoming hero, you know he's he's a, he's an international cricketer. He's not simply an Indian cricketer He's universally admired, and you know he was applauded to the echo in coming to the wicket. There was a sense of great occasion about it, and he was out first ball <laughs> caught down the leg side. It was a terrible way to get out. It's uh, you know they call it the leg side strangle, uh, and it's as ugly as it as it sounds. And he was applauded all the way off, and there was a sense of incredible overpower. Uh, anti-climax about it. I think if you'd actually taken a vote in the ground on that occasion as to whether Tendulka could have another go, uh, everyone, it would have been a unanimous vote in favour mm-hmm. of, of, of Tendulka being given another opportunity. People just came to watch him mm-hmm. because there is a sense of event, a, a sense of occasion, a sense of theatre about about Tendulka coming to the wicket. He is, um, uh, in my time, there's been no better technician um, Uh, than than Tendulkar, because it's almost as though he hasn't been taught the game. It's as though he kind of intuited the game from first principles. He was told that there were certain sort of things that you had to do, and he kind of invented or or contoured his technique accordingly. Uh, And he's also – he's not the equivalent of of, of Shane Warne in India, but he is – he occupies a, a similar kind of cultural space in the sense that he is the most famous player of his era mm-hmm. and he has become he has taken on sort of symbolic resonances. He's just kind of a symbol of of aspirational India over the last Two decades during which the Indian economy um, has been so dynamic, and the, the the country itself has changed so much. And he, of course, in that time, has been a kind of a still point in a moving world. He has provided this sense of of continuity, this kind of channeling of of, of, of old fashioned values and, and and precepts throughout this this turbulent period, and has borne himself with you know immense dignity and uh, and um, and decency, uh, and has has been as discreet as as Shane Warne has been indiscreet yeah. in his time. He's kind of like a Tiger Woods gone right. <laughs> so,
1: so both players are coming to the end of their careers. Uh, do you fear there will be something of a of a vacuum in in cricket once they they both retire?
0: It's a good it, it's a good question. Um, I think that uh, uh, I mean I think. Warren did leave a vacuum when he, when he left Test cricket um, five years ago. Uh, I, I in writing about him last year, I said that um, he's like Norma Desmond, you know he's still big. it's the cricket that got small. Mm-hmm. Uh, where where Tyndark is concerned, there are all sorts of uh, slightly disturbing economic conjectures about what the impact of his retirement will be on Indian cricket. You know, I've heard predictions that you know audiences might decline by as much as a quarter mm-hmm. because so many people are invested so heavily in Tendulkar rather than in cricket itself. Uh, you know, if if, if Tendulkar didn't exist, it would have been necessary to invent him, but you can't reinvent him. Uh, there can't be a new tendulka any more than there can be a new Warren. You can find new characters, but you can't remodel the old. And in a sense, you know, cricket is moving into into a very uncertain time.
1: So getting back to the uh, the subtitle of your book, uh, Cricket and Its Discontents, what, what gives you hope in looking at the future of the sport?
0: Primarily that it's a good sport. Mm-hmm. It's a good game. And as far as I'm concerned, it's still the best game. And it has shown... Um, astonishing suppleness and uh and flexibility um you know here is a game which you can play for as long as five days and you can play for as short as six overs there's a tournament in hong kong called the hong kong sixes in which the games are basically over in about half an hour Mm -hmm. any game that you can tug so far in two such entirely opposite directions must have a lot going for it uh and i think that um now, when I play it at the weekend, uh, even after all this time, having played it for um, more than 30 years at, um, at, at club level, I'm still finding kind of new experiences and, and new excitements and new dimensions to it. And, uh, and I think that um, even, if, even if cricket were to vanish tomorrow, at international level, if television pulled the plug on it entirely and cricket became invisible as a mass media product, people go on playing it because the sensations of playing it are the most satisfying and rejuvenating and inspiriting of all sports. There you go. There's a modest claim for uh, for my favourite game. <laughs> I've tried other games, but they they just don't measure up.
1: So we're almost out of time, Gideon, uh, uh, I want to ask you though, uh, in one of your essays from years ago, you wrote that you have more than three thousand cricket books and periodicals. Yeah, that was
0: years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So probably years. probably yeah.
1: loads more now, right, right yeah. so let, So let's say a wayward American comes to your place <laughs> in Melbourne and, and yeah. says give me give me one book off your shelf that that would give me the best the best picture of cricket. What would it be?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think the book that the book that's probably most influenced me as a writer was a book called uh, *The Willow Wand*. Um, it's a book by an English um, academic called Derek Burley. Uh, it's a very irreverent look at some of cricket's mythological assumptions about itself, mm-hmm. its association with fair play. Uh, it's association with the kind of a period of prelapsarian innocence um, in you know, an English pastoral idyll. Uh, and it's written in a sort of a crackling and, um, and contra- uh, controversial manner, deliberately to pick a fight. And you know, some of my pieces in Serial Influence are specifically to, to start arguments, not to finish mm. them, but to start them. Uh, So that book has been very heavily influential on me. And I think if someone wanted to understand, you know, why I write the way that I do, if I was trying to explain that to him, that's the book that I'd probably give them. Mm -hmm. But the book that I think has probably given me uh, as much pleasure as any um, is a book called uh, The Golden Age of Cricket by David Frith. Uh, It's a book It's a lavishly illustrated book. It's actually a book mainly of of pictures uh, about the period in English cricket from 1890 to 1914, the kind of the late Victorian, early Edwardian period when cricket probably uh, was as high in English esteem and and prestige as it ever has been. And it was a period of great mass prosperity, uh, of great national confidence uh, and... The individuals were themselves um, great characters. Um, you know, there was a very solid kind of amateur tradition in, in English cricket that had a kind of a confidence of its own aristocracy. Uh, and David's book—I know David well. He's—you know—he's become a, a, a good friend of mine. As a as a time capsule, as a kind of a, um, a representation of a particular historical period. Uh, both visual and written it's kind of it's you sort of do drift into a bit of a a reverie a nostalgia for a period that you never lived through Mm -hmm. um there's something kind of exquisite about this kind of imagined world now i've since subsequently done historical research into that period and i've discovered that like all golden ages uh it had its yellowness at times um and you know once you scratched the surface, there were some pretty unsavory undercurrents to it. It wasn't all that it was scraped up to be. but in terms of a kind of a survey, a flavorsome and evocative survey of kind of a, um, a, a, a an imagining of, of cricket past, I don't think there's a there's a book that that outdoes this one. Um, I could pick it up now and I'd be kind of transported.
1: And so, what are you working on now? Do you have a new new book project?
0: Well, it's strange that you should say that. I've I've actually um, I've got a book coming out uh, in May, uh, which is a non cricket book. As I said before, I do quite a bit of non cricket writing. I've written a, um, uh, a history of the office, of officers, office mm-hmm. life, office work, office buildings, um, office politics, office romance. Huh. Uh, it's about – it's 200,000-plus words. It's l- quite lavishly illustrated. It's the product of about three years' work and, and a lifetime of thinking, uh, we, and I've really enjoyed doing it. Um, it's been kind of the great passion of my life outside cricket for uh, for, the, for the last little while. And uh, I'm busy at the moment writing a book about Shane Warne, mm-hmm. um, a kind of a an extended appreciation of, of – him as a cricketer and as an Australian personality, which will be published at the end of at the end of this year.
1: Well, Gideon, thank you for uh, for coming on New Books and Sports. So, as an American, of course, cricket is a foreign language to me. But uh, this this book was uh, uh, a wonderful textbook of contemporary cricket. I, I I filled it full of notes, and and uh, I really enjoyed reading it.
0: Well one of the one of the nicest tributes that was ever paid to me was by a woman called Michelle Schwartz who wrote a, a very good book a few years ago about the death of an Australian cricketer called David Hooks and she knew nothing about cricket and she went into her local library and she contacted me afterwards and she said I looked through all the cricket books but yours were the only ones that I understood huh. so I've been quite proud of that that I've that I can write about cricket for people who know nothing about cricket I agree. so Thanks very much. I accept the compliment. I would, I would second that compliment. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Bruce.
1: You've been listening to an interview with Gideon Hag, about his book, Sphere of Influence, Writings on Cricket and Its Discontents, published in 2010 by Victory Books and released in the U.K. by Simon & Schuster. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects from popular music to public policy. If you like what you heard here, please friend New Books in Sports on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where you can give us feedback and find daily links to quality, shorter sports writing from around the world. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thanks for listening and enjoy your week.